This morning we're going to be looking in, in our Bibles in Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn there, be finding that. We'll get into the text in just a few moments. Romans chapter 3, uh, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20 today. You know, at the end of a jury trial in a courtroom, the attorneys have the opportunity to present their closing arguments. How many of you were ever fans of Perry Mason? The good old black and white, uh, one of the first, I guess, um, uh, attorney-type, courtroom-type dramas. Great, great show. and, and over and over again in, in, in movies that you've seen, this, this, um, where, where, where there's a, a trial of some sort involved, you, you've, you've heard an attorney stand, a prosecutor and also the defense attorney stand and present closing arguments. Those closing arguments are their summary of all the evidence that they've presented thus far in the case and in the trial for their side. And it's also their appeal to the jury for what they perceive to be the appropriate verdict. And, of course, the defense attorney is going to appeal to them to, on behalf of, of, of the one accused in his defense, and the, the prosecution is going to come and, and appeal to the jury, try to make a, a convincing closing argument that this person needs to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. We continue our study this morning in the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we've been looking at this amazing book under the the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. What's this letter about? What what was the, the, the main thing on the mind and in the heart of Paul as he wrote this letter to the church at Rome from there in Corinth? It was the good news of the righteousness of God. We've already read about it this morning. It was about the good news, the message that God has sent his son to bring the righteousness to unrighteous people that we as unrighteous people need to to be made right with God. He's done that in the person of his son, and it only comes as a gift, the gospel of the righteousness of God. And we've been learning in chapters 1 through 3 thus far about the righteous wrath of God and, and, and the fact that everyone on the planet deserves God's just wrath on our sin. Today, we come to a closing argument, but it's different than any closing argument you've ever heard in a courtroom here on planet Earth. This closing argument doesn't wait for the verdict of a jury. The argument is God's, and the verdict is God's, and His word on the matter is final. But as you'll see at the very end of this message, this judge throws in a wonderfully amazing and crazy plot twist. And we'll see that at the end of the message. I want to show you this morning God's closing argument in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And here's the, albeit quite long, take-home truth. The evidence... That every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that apart from faith in the gospel of God, the entire human race is left without a plea before the holy judge. When God wraps up his closing argument, that's the takeaway. 
That's what we hear and feel and know. That the evidence that every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that apart from faith in the gospel of God, the entire human race is left without a plea before the holy judge. First of all, I want you to see from verse 9 as we begin to work through the text. We're just going to work through a verse at a time, a couple verses at a time. I want you to see the divine arraignment. Now, what is an arraignment? Some of you know, I'm looking at some law enforcement roundabout, people that are in the courtroom. Uh, an arraignment, it's a formal reading of a criminal charging document in the presence of the defendant. And so, and so this is where he kind of starts. He kind of just gives the big picture. Here's, what's, here, here's what's, uh, what, what, the, what the accused is guilty of. This is the charge that's being made. I guess at that point, not having been yet found guilty, but being charged... This is what they're being charged with. In this case, it's a foregone conclusion. He spent three three chapters showing us how true it is. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now, if you've been with us, you're confused, right? Because last week when we looked at verses 1 through 8 of this chapter, he started that discussion by saying, what benefit is there of being a Jew? Or is there any benefit? And, and Paul's answer is yes. It's not a waste. There's a lot of benefit. So now he says there's no benefit. What, what's the deal? Well, he's talking about two different things in, the, in these two different places. In verses 1 through 8, he's saying the benefit to being a Jew is that you've been given the law. You had all the prophets. You've had all the revelation of God. God had his, his, his set his seal on you. He, he gave his covenant to you. He had a personal relationship with the people of Israel, a, a, a unique relationship with that nation and, 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 and all those who would trust him by faith had a special personal saving relationship with them. And so in that sense, Jews, had, there's an advantage to being a Jew. But what he's saying here is that when it comes to our standing before God, there's no difference. Listen to what he says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean, Paul says, that everything's good between you and God, because that's not how it works. You have many benefits. You've got many blessings. You had the law. You heard the prophets. You knew about Messiah to come, the Savior who would be the key to you being made right with God. But just simply being a Jew doesn't save. In fact, all are under sin. So what does it mean? This is the divine arraignment. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, it means at least a couple of things. First of all, it means to be condemned in sin, right? It means that God has said this is right, and you and I came out of the womb ready to do what was wrong. And we spent a lifetime doing just that. You've never had to teach your precious newborn babies as they begin to grow up. You've never had to teach one to be selfish. Amen? You've never had to teach one to quit sharing so much. Right? I mean, mean, it's in them. We'll see it as we go. To be under sin means to be condemned in sin. Romans 5 verse 12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who would that be? How did sin enter the world? What chapter of the Bible did that happen in? 
Adam, Genesis 3, the fall in the Garden of Eden, when God had said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, and yet the, the serpent, Satan, convinced Eve to partake, and Adam, standing right there as the leader of his home, said, yeah, go ahead, girl, I'll have some too. <laughs> and he plunged the race, all humanity, into sin. Therefore, just as sin in, came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, you say, that doesn't sound fair. I wasn't there. No, but here's the deal. You'd have done the same thing Adam did had you been there, but here's the way it works. It doesn't matter. You, you could argue about that. You could fight that. You say, no, I wouldn't have. I'm a better husband than that. Yeah, right. Um, but if you are, nonetheless, the point is you didn't, it, God, God, God put it on Adam and he blew it. He represented the whole of humanity. The first man represented the whole of the race. And like it or not, the decision he made affected everyone ever born with the exception of Jesus Christ thereafter. Death was a consequence and death spread to all men. It means to be condemned in sin. That's what it means to be under sin. Also, Romans 3, verse 23, verse, uh, first part of that verse says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. Now, you can imagine if, if God is glorious and he has a standard and you fall short of it, what's he going to do? He's holy. He's just. He's not going to, like your grandma and grandpa do, just wink at it. Say, don't worry about it. So that's, that, that sin, that, that, that blasphemy, that, that abomination, all, all that, those lies you tell, the way you act, the way you think in con contradiction to my holiness, it's not that big a deal. He's not going to say that. He has to judge that. And so we are under sin. We're under the condemnation of sin. God Almighty in His holiness responds to our shortfall, our falling short of His glory, our transgressing, our sin with His judgment. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 describe it this way. Paul says, And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, listen, by nature, children of wrath, condemned in sin, like the rest of mankind. What does it mean to be by nature, children of wrath? It means we're born under the wrath of God, we're born in sin as the heirs of Adam, the descendants of Adam, fallen in our very nature and justly condemned by holy God like the rest of mankind. And Paul reminds the Ephesian church, it's who you were, you're condemned in sin. But also you heard in, in those verses that we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, not only does being, being under sin mean be, to be condemned in sin? It means to be controlled by sin. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians there, he describes their life and how they lived. He said, before you came to Christ, this is how you lived. You were a slave to sin. You did what sons of disobedience do. You disobeyed. Holy God. Romans 6 makes it clear that apart from faith in Jesus, we are, in fact, slaves to sin. Sin was our master before we came to Christ, if we know him here today. 
Today, if you don't know Jesus, sin is your master. You are chained by sin. John 3, verses 19 and 20, Jesus put it this way, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Who is the light? Who was the light? Jesus. I mean, it's one, one answer to that question. A lot of times if you say, who was the something like that, it's Jesus. Just, just try that. If that's not the right answer, I'll tell you, but it's usually the right answer. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We're children of darkness. We're controlled by sin. In John 8, verse 34, Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin, where did Paul get this language? Is a slave to sin. Where were we before Christ came and saved us? We were slaves to sin. We were not just condemned in sin, but we were controlled by sin. And this is the divine arraignment. Guilty and under the, 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 under the power of of sin. Colossians 1.21 describes us in our, in our former state before we were saved. If you're here this morning and don't know Jesus, this is you. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Alienated and hostile toward who? God, holy God. Alienated from God and hostile in mind toward holy God. That's who we were before Jesus came. And all of these verses, this text in general, is describing to us this morning our total inability to remove ourselves from sin's condemnation and control. We're going to begin to walk through the divine indictment in just a minute, but, 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 but get the divine arraignment. Guilty. Under sin. The charge is the world is under sin. What does that mean? It means that we're condemned in sin and that we're controlled by sin. The evidence that every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that apart from faith in the gospel of God, the entire human race is left without a plea before the holy judge. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you were dead. Another way to, to, to word the divine arraignment is dead in sin. Now, let me just ask you, what can a dead man do for himself? Not a thing. I mean, that just sounds silly, doesn't it? Because we know he's dead. I mean, if he's dead, he's dead. We are totally unable to remove ourselves from sin's condemnation and control. That's where we are in the courtroom of God and in the reality of our lives. And then he begins to unpack this arraignment in the divine indictment, verses 10 through 18. 10 through 12 first. What's the first line of evidence that he brings out in the case, what's the first line of evidence in his closing argument that he gives that proves the deadness of our hearts? 
our inability to remove ourselves from sin's condemnation and control. The first thing he brings up in verses 10 through 12 is, is humanity's depraved character. Listen to it. As it is written, and by the way, notice what he does. He turns to the Word of God. Paul turns and begins to quote Scripture. So all of a sudden, he's, he, he's, just, he's using God's words to indict the whole of the human race. And here's, here's what he says. As this is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Quotation from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Ecclesiastes 7. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How many good people are there on the earth? How many righteous people? How many people that have ever taken one step in the direction of holy God on their own? Zero. Again, all this is taken and put together from Psalms 14, Psalms 53 and Ecclesiastes 7. The divine indictment, it starts with humanity's depraved character. This is what we are inside. This is who we were before Christ came and saved us, church. And you see, remember what Paul said in Romans 1 when he said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, he was eager to preach it to you also who were at Rome? And we talked about that a few weeks ago. He wasn't just eager to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard the gospel. He wanted to go to Rome and talk to the believers and preach the gospel they'd heard again to them. Why? Because your greatest need, my greatest need as a follower of Jesus, is to hear the gospel again. To be reminded of the gospel again. To never be allowed in our own hearts and minds to forget that this is who we were and who we would be apart from Jesus Christ. To be reminded over and over and over again that had God not come to us, we would not be his today. Had he not sought us, no one seeks God. Y'all all right? Now, I realize that you thought you sought God, right? At some point, your heart started moving toward him. But what, what the Bible makes clear is what was happening is he was drawing you. He had come to you. And through cords of love and the gospel... Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless, uh, comes to, to me unless the Father draws him. And how amazing is it to realize that what I thought was me taking steps toward Jesus was Jesus and the Father drawing me, loving me, pulling me to them. What an amazing salvation. Humanity's depraved character. This is the first line of evidence in the divine indictment. But the second line is in verses 13 and 14. Humanity's depraved condition. Not just a depraved character, but a... a, a I'm sorry. Not just a, a depraved character, but a depraved conversation. Look at verses 13 and 14. These, these are about our words. These two verses talk about our tongues. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their, their, their lips. Vipers, it means. Snakes. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul pulls from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10 to put together this little trio of, of thoughts about Humanity's depraved conversation. This is what comes out of our mouths. This is, this is the way we talk apart from Jesus. 
And I said, man, that's kind of rough, Paul. I mean, it was really that bad. Like, I know some people, I mean, they don't, they don't hiss like snakes. They don't sound, I mean, they don't sound near this nasty. Well, Jesus said the same thing. Paul didn't make this stuff up. Matthew 15, 18, and 19, Paul, uh, Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What was he combating there? He was, he was teaching them, look, it's not what you eat and put in your mouth and swallow down that just passes on through that defiles you. It's not, it's not the pork that you might eat, want to eat. That's, that's not going to defile you. It's not about what you put in. It's what comes out of your mouth. And you know where that comes from? It comes from your heart. And it shows the corruption of the human heart. For out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You see, we are under sin, and what that means is we're born with hearts that spew out the mouth all of that stuff. The, the truth of the matter is, as the believers, we continue to struggle with the control of our tongue. James, right? In the book of James, it's, I mean, it's a problem lifelong. It's a battle lifelong, but only as believers indwelt by the Spirit of God can we even begin to get a handle and, and tame the tongue. James says that no man can tame the tongue. Only the Spirit of the living God can tame the tongue. Humanity's depraved conversation. But thirdly, as we think about the divine in, uh, indictment, depraved con- character, depraved conversation, look at verses 15 to 17. Humanity's depraved conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Proverbs 1.16 and then a couple verses from Isaiah 59 is where he's quoting from. In those verses, humanity's depraved conduct. They're swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, they have not known. Where does it all start? Well, it starts in the heart, but in particular, it starts with the very last thing he says as we think about the divine indictment. Notice in verse 18, humanity's depraved motive. What's driving all that we've talked about? Why is the character depraved? Why is the conversation depraved? Why is the conduct depraved? Why is that the default of every human being apart from Jesus Christ changing us and saving us? It's because of what happens in our heart according to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 36, verse 1 there. We are born into this world with no fear of God before our eyes. Why do we sin on on every level? Because we do not fear God enough to do what God says to do. We decide, just as Adam and Eve did, that we will instead be God. We will call the shots in our lives. We will do what we want to do when we want to do it. No fear of God before their eyes. Humanity's depraved motive. Man, this closing argument about the bad news is pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, when he wraps up this whole three-chapter discussion of the wrath of God, he does it 
amazingly. I mean, it's crystal clear and it's, it's, it's awful. And all of these lines of evidence go together in the divine indictment to prove the truth that we are totally unable to free ourselves from the condemnation of God or the power, the condemnation uh, of sin and the power of sin, the control of sin. We're slaves of sin under the wrath of God right where we deserve to be apart from Jesus. Is Is that clear? Everybody got that? And again, that's important for me to remember as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's important for you to never forget. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it's paramount that this morning you hear what's being said by the Word of God. Because the evidence that every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that the entire human race, you, sir, you, ma'am included, are left without a plea before the holy judge. There's nothing you can say, and we're going to see that part in a minute. There's no answer you have for the guilt, for the slavery of sin in which you find yourself, in which every one of us in this room once was. And so thirdly, he wraps up his closing argument with a divine verdict. Again, God's his own prosecution, his own jury, and his own judge. Amen? Verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So what does that mean? It means what the law says, it speaks to those to whom it was given, namely the Jews, right? Now, does that mean that's the only people it speaks to and thereby condemns? No, that's what he's going to go on to say. So that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. Every Jewish mouth? No, every mouth. How do we know? Because he goes on and says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So how does this work? If the Jews, who were graciously given God's law, are condemned by the law, and they are, right? We've seen that in in weeks past. Then clearly the rest of the world that doesn't even know all the particulars of God's law is certainly condemned by God's law. That's what he's saying. Uh, Because as we've seen before, even the Gentiles, the rest of the world, those who aren't Jews, who didn't have the law, they know enough of the law of God, having the law written on their hearts by the hand of God himself in creation. They know enough to be, as Romans 1 says, without excuse. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God, through Paul, wraps up this case and and says, here's the divine verdict. Everybody's guilty. Every mouth that's ever existed on the face of the earth, except Jesus' mouth, is stopped. The whole world will stand before God with a hand over their mouth because there's nothing they can say in response and stand before holy God accountable and thereby guilty and condemned in sin under the control of sin. That's the divine verdict. 
And the rest of it is the fact that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You cannot make yourself right with God by trying to do good. You've already blown it. We've talked about this. You've broken at least one of God's laws. And that is a very facetious statement, amen? I mean, I broke one probably somewhere even in this service. I mean, we break the law of God all the time, don't we? Sometimes we don't even realize we've broken the law of God. And if we've broken one of God's laws, we've broken the whole thing, you can't fix it. You can't somehow make yourself a a perfect law keeper when you've already been a lawbreaker. And even if you could do the rest of your life and never break the law, which you can't, it still wouldn't change the fact that you'd broken it. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know what Paul's saying? The law's purpose, and there's a whole, there's a whole section of Galatians about this. The law's purpose is to show you and me That was his purpose when when he gave it to the Jews, to show the Jews and the rest of the world, all of us, that we need a Savior. We need the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come and be born of a virgin to live in our place, a perfect life for us, go to the cross and bear God's wrath for us, be dead three days, but on the third day rise again in victory to be resurrected for our justification that we might be made right with holy God. The law shows us our sin. Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, explains this verse as good as any when he says, the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed, even Jesus Christ. That's the point of the law. That's why God loved you enough to tell you the bad news. That's why we spend about four sermons at East LJ for the last month talking about the wrath of God. Why? So that you, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you may be driven to the grace of God, the only hope you have. So that you see clearly there is no other way out of the holy wrath of God except the gift of grace in Jesus, the gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the reason. And church, the reason you need to hear this is so you never forget. Amazing grace. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is why Isaiah wailed, woe is me, for I am lost, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what the law does. It condemns us and causes us to cry out in our undoneness. James 2 8 
says this. We've already, or, I'm sorry, Romans 2.8. We've already looked at this in previous studies. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, in the context of the truth of the gospel, but obey unrighteousness, listen, there will be wrath and fury. Who's wrath? God's. Who's fury? God's. The law shuts us all up under the condemnation of sin and says, guilty. And the result will be that on judgment day, God's wrath, and that's a terrifying word in and of itself, but that word fury will be unleashed. Forever on us if we don't know Christ. Jesus described hell this way in Mark 9, 47 and 48. Hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, there are those who are intellectually astute. They've studied the Word. They've gone back into the historical setting of the Scriptures, and they say what he was looking at is the Valley of Hinnom, which is where the, there's a trash heap out there on, on, the, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and, and it was the valley where they dumped all their trash. It's where they dumped their outhouse buckets. It's where they, all the nasty stuff went. And they kept a fire burning to consume it, and, and it just always burned. And, of course, you can imagine trash and, 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 and sewage, worms everywhere, nasty and it doesn't mean, Jesus really doesn't mean literally that hell's going to be this place of, of, of eternal torment where there's never-ending fire and, and worms. and it's just, just, it's just a symbol. It's just an image. Well, okay, let's say it's a symbol. What are symbols for? Why don't we use symbols? Why don't we just use words? Why don't we just use clear, linear sentences that define and explain what we're trying to say? Because we need a picture to describe something, either good or bad, and in this case, bad. You know what I know about symbols that are used for bad things? They're never as bad as the reality, and in this case, that's exactly the case. So when we read this, some may say, well, you know, uh, I mean, is that how we're supposed to think of hell? Would God make hell that way? No, he made it worse. That's the best illustration that was there at the time. Will hell be that? No, it'll be worse than that, and it'll be forever. James Denning said, the lost in hell suffer an infinite and irreparable loss. They will pass into a night on which no morning will ever dawn. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, said, the wicked in hell shall always be dying but never dead. Just think about that for a minute. Can I just be honest with you? I don't fear death. I, I, I really, I fear dying. I don't want to go through dying, right? Anybody testify? I do not fear because if the gospel's true, I do not fear once being once I'm once it's over being dead. I know where I'm going to be. But there's ways of dying that I'm not excited about. 
Can you imagine always being dying but never being dead? Under the conscious, eternal torment of the holy and just wrath of Almighty God because you did not take His righteousness by faith in Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world. You were already condemned. He came to save you. So if you end up in hell, it's like this. If, you, if you've heard the gospel and you have today and you end up in hell, here's the deal. You sent yourself to hell because you rejected Jesus. Revelation 14.10. Chad, are you about done with this rough stuff? Yes, but not yet. Revelation 14.10 describes it this way. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It never stops. The burning, the pain, the, 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 the angst and desperation of being rejected by God never stops forever. Do we stop and think about, as believers, the hell we have been spared? I need to more. You need to more. Why? So we will praise him more. And so we will lay our lives down in surrender and service for him more. Because if you really get what you've been spared from and what you've been given in Jesus, if you get it, you can't help but crawl up on the altar of sacrifice and say, God, I'm not mine, I'm yours, all of me, all the time. And if we really understand, the reason I wanted to walk through these awful passages is because if we really understand and believe the truth of, of what hell is, what the wrath and fury of God being poured out upon people we know is all about, then we will not be silent. Can I say it this way? If I am silent in a lot of the verses we just read, in the reality that I know people who need Jesus, they don't know him, that is their eternal destiny today. And I don't tell them I am cruel. I am wicked. I am mean. I hate them in my silence, and so do you. The evidence that every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that apart from faith in the gospel of God, the entire human race is left without a plea before the holy judge. We're just standing before God guilty with a hand over our mouths because we have nothing to say. It's like the old hymn we sang, Joe, just as I am without one plea. This is the passage that came from Romans 3. 
But this is where the wonderfully amazing and crazy plot twist comes in. The judge himself made a decision before the world began, before Adam ever sinned, that when it all came down in history, he would enter creation himself as Jesus of Nazareth and endure the sentence that he's pronounced on all of our sin. And in so doing, maintain his holy justice and at the very same time, remake all former enemies of God who will trust in Jesus into his own righteous, fully accepted sons and daughters. What a plot twist. The judge and jury that condemned us becomes the Savior who rescues us from the sentence passed in the court of heaven. What a salvation. And we're going to read next week's text. I'm not going to preach it, I promise. But we've got to read it. It's the plot twist. When you get to Romans 3.20, the verdict, all are guilty, they have nothing to say, they're damned to a devil's hell forever. The wrath and fury of God is all they can expect. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The judge has said everyone's guilty and damned. You will be the recipients of God's wrath and fury forever. But the righteousness you you don't have and that you can never get on your own, it's been given as a gift. And there's one way for you to, to be made right. There's nothing you can do but stand there with your hand over your mouth and endure hell. You're totally unable to free yourself from sin's condemnation or sin's control. But God gave His own Son to be the righteousness you need, and He says you can have all the righteousness of heaven. You can have everything you need to be made right with the Holy God and not just be seen as if you never sinned, but be seen by Holy God as if you had always obeyed. How do you get it? By grace. That means you don't earn it. You don't do anything to get it as a gift. Simply taking it by faith. Saying, God, this is what you said. I believe it. We sang that this morning. You say that the way for me to be made right with you is to simply rest, trust Jesus. I believe you don't lie. I believe there's nothing I can do, Father, but I believe you've done it all in Jesus. And that all I have to do is trust him, his finished work. When he said it is finished, he meant it. 
And if I simply trust him, I will be forgiven. I will be made righteous. I'll be rescued. I'll be saved. There'll be for me no longer any condemnation before holy God. I'll have a certain eternity. I'll have his indwelling in this life. His spirit will come to live in me. He'll be with me forever. God, I believe what you say about me. That song I referred to at the beginning of the service, isn't he? One of the lines says, giver of a grace that none could earn. That's who this Jesus is. And then back to the old hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea. Listen to the words. Maybe they take on new meaning as, as we've unpacked Romans 3. Maybe, maybe you hear them differently today. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I don't have but one thing to say, God, before you. There's nothing I can say about me. The only plea I have is that Jesus' blood was shed in my place. That's what you said, God, and I'm just saying it back to you. I'm agreeing with you. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. I I can't do anything, but Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I come to you. I come to you. The evidence that every person deserves the wrath of God is so overwhelming that apart from faith in the gospel of God, the entire human race is left without a plea before the holy judge. But we can plead the gospel. We can plead Jesus as our righteousness, as our only hope. And just know this, God loves to save sinners. God loves to save sinners like me, like you, like all those around us. God's the great evangelist. He sent his son when we weren't looking for a savior. He's the father who runs to a prodigal to reclaim him from the taskmaster of his own sin and make him his own son. Jesus himself left glory in his father's side to seek and save, Scripture tells us, the lost by laying down his life in a criminal's execution for the sin of all who will ever believe. And his spirit will give you and me the power we need to be witnesses to Jesus' saving work, to be witnesses of the gospel of the righteousness of God, that unrighteous people can be made righteous with holy God by the righteousness of Jesus. Will we be faithful? Will we live with this urgency? Will we plead as dying men and women, apart from Jesus, with dying men and women, for them to run to our Savior, the only hope for anybody in the world? Let's pray together.